Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cassus Belly Project. It's been a minute since our last episode, and I apologize for that, but I promise the show will go on, even at a glacial pace. I realize today that the show is taking longer than the actual war. That's unacceptable. So I'm going to make a concerted effort to pick up the pace and at least catch up to where I feel I should be. I did my Pearl Harbor episode in December 2018, so I should be in early 1943 right now in the show. This episode only gets us up to October 1942, and I still need to go back to the Pacific for Midway and the Coral Sea in the spring of 42, so I've got my work cut out for me. But, as of recording right now, I've already got most of that show written, so I need to keep up this effort and kind of stay ahead of myself. Anyway, in this episode, it's back to North Africa. We're kind of bouncing around a lot lately from the Pacific to the Eastern Front to North Africa, and then back to the Pacific, but that's just the nature of the war at this point. There's a lot going on, so I apologize for the narrative whiplash. Anyway, I suppose we might as well get started. Let's begin episode 24, Foxcatcher. Ah, have been astonished. That Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? If you remember back to episode 14, we left off with Rommel's offensive eastward against the British in North Africa was halted in western Cyrenica. A bloody campaign had just been fought in the final months of 1941, and by the beginning of 1942, both sides were digging in, refitting, and plotting their next moves. Unfortunately for the British, events in the Far East dictated that forces be drawn out of the Near East to shore up against the Japanese in the western Pacific. In total, Auchinleck lost four fighter squadrons and hundreds of tanks, as well as two infantry divisions, to force realignment. In addition, reinforcements and replacements were diverted, further limiting his ability to continue the drive west. Not that Rommel was in much better shape. The Eastern Front continued to consume the German high command's every waking moment. Only a trickle of supplies continued to flow to the North African theater, and Rommel would have to continue to fight at a numerical disadvantage. Of course, he still retained the greatest advantage, experience and superior tactics. This was compounded by the fact that British command was just a hot mess. General Ritchie remained in command of the 8th Army, despite being a temporary replacement, but he could not be removed because the political optics would make the war in the Middle East theater appear to be going worse than it was. Not to mention that Ritchie was completely unprepared to fight an armored campaign in the desert. He failed to understand that static positions offer no advantage in the fluid, featureless desert. Still, he prepared to continue the campaign begun the previous summer. He had managed to retake most of Cyrenica, and hoped to continue on to Tripoli. He only needed more time to prepare. He wouldn't get that time. Rommel struck first, beginning his 1942 campaign at the end of January. He had grand ambitions. Not only did he wish to retake all of Cyrenica, 
but the grand prize of Egypt. The campaign now begun would culminate at maybe the greatest desert battle of all time, El Alamein. Striking out from western Cyrenica, one column was pushed forward along the coast road, and the other along the road that cuts through the inland, from roughly Agadabi through Mechili to Tobruk. Ritchie incorrectly assessed that Rommel's advancing columns were merely a reconnaissance in force, or some kind of feint. When Rommel's advancing tanks did not halt and turn around on the second day of the campaign, January 22nd, Ritchie knew he was wrong. This was only the first mistake Ritchie would make. On January 27th, Rommel made a demonstration towards Mechili with his southern column. Ritchie and Auchinleck took the bait and moved tanks to reinforce the town. Rommel had no intention of striking there, though. Instead, he turned his column left and drove north. The tank columns cut off the 4th Indian Division and nearly forced their surrender, but only through sheer tenacity did the Indian troops escape capture by fighting their way out. Though the 4th Indians were able to escape, Rommel was still able to capture Benghazi and the massive stockpile Ritchie had been collecting there for his continued offensive westward. Having captured Benghazi, Rommel paused to catch his breath, and the theater entered into a five-month hiatus. This was only the prelude to his Egyptian campaign. Rommel also needed to husband his strength. The British would not surrender Egypt and the greater Middle East easily. They would fight doggedly all the way back to Cairo. He needed more men, more tanks, and more close air support. So in March, he flew back to Germany to beg for any reinforcement he could get. Instead of getting the help he wanted, the German high command only threw more tasks at him. They believed a joint German-Italian invasion of Malta was in order. True, Malta was a huge thorn in the side of the Axis Mediterranean operations, but the medieval fortress city for the Knights of St. John was a stout fortress for a reason. It was too small for airborne operations, and its rocky, cliff-strewn shores offer no obvious places to land amphibious troops. Rommel was having none of it. He refused to conduct the operation and got permission to conduct his Egyptian campaign beginning in May. He returned to Libya with little to show for his trouble, but remained determined nonetheless. As Rommel searched in vain for supplies, Ritchie began digging in around Gazala. He began constructing a patchwork of strongholds, stretching from the coast inland about 60 miles. Though quite sturdy against a frontal attack, the network didn't do anything to alter the facts of desert war, that there is always a flank to turn. Ritchie would have to extend his line an absurd distance into the desert to prevent Rommel from turning his left, which he could not do for want of men and logistics capability. Ritchie still hadn't grasped that a static defense was not the solution to his Rommel problem. So when Rommel resumed the offensive in May of 1942, he did just that. He drove around Ritchie's defensive line. Rommel personally led his column of 561 tanks toward Bir Hakim. Rommel's armor was concentrated and prepared for battle. He understood that maneuver was all important, and that concentrated firepower was the key to success. Ritchie's armor was distributed both geographically and logically. Rather than concentrating his tanks into a single task force committed as a reserve, the tanks were dispersed to various divisional commanders. This again benefited the Desert Fox, despite the fact that the Commonwealth tank numbers exceeded his by 400. Rommel wouldn't simply allow Ritchie's men to sit in the foxholes, though. Instead, he threw the Italian infantry at the static positions to tie them up and hopefully draw in the British armor while his tanks raced around them. When Rommel's tanks were spotted, the Allied Free French garrison at Bir Hakim was at breakfast and caught completely by surprise. They had no inclination that the Germans were on the move, 
and themselves expected to resume the offensive in the coming weeks. As soon as the British realized what was happening, they began organizing their defense, but their piecemeal approach would not halt the German single-minded effort. As the Italian infantry held down the bulk of the line, the elite Arietta Division, along with the 15th and 23rd Panzer Divisions, along with the 90th Light Division, captured Bir Hakeim. The Italian Trieste Division struck at the southwesternmost Commonwealth position, the Knightsbridge Box. Just as everywhere else along the line, the men here were caught with their pants down, sometimes literally. Some commanders even had men on leave to go swimming at the shore. The remaining defenders were no match for the German armor. When the British tanks did counterattack, they did so desynchronized and at the direction of local commanders, rather than at the army level. Worse, they counterattacked online, allowing the Germans to blast away at them with their towed 88s and 37mm guns, which they brought with them everywhere with devastating effect. The Allies were able to inflict some damage on Rommel's forces, however. The new Grant tanks, with their 75mm guns, were technologically superior to most of Rommel's panzers, and were able to score kills. By May 29th, those kills were beginning to add up. Along with his tank losses, Rommel was also quickly burning through fuel and ammunition. As the Africa Corps began orienting itself towards Tobruk, the men in Gazala feared being cut off, and so began to evacuate, beginning the Gazala Gallop to escape. Though not all of them, enough men remained behind to put up an impressive defense, and actually held up Rommel for two weeks. Though it was largely static, it prevented Rommel from moving on Tobruk giving troops their precious time to prepare. It also further complicated the Germans' logistical problems. As it stood, Rommel had to route his long logistics trains around the minefields that had been established around the checkerboard strongpoints. When the Allies had been repelled far enough back, he was able to bring forward his engineers to clear the unobserved minefields and create paths straight through them, relieving some of his supply line problems and cutting down on the amount of fuel needed just to get supplies to the front. Gazala had cost General Ritchie dearly. 80,000 men were lost, most of them having surrendered, and massive stockpiles for a summer offensive that would never begin were captured or burned before the Germans could seize them. His forces had also been driven back behind where they had begun their offensive two years earlier under General O'Connor. With Rommel staring down the barrel of Tobruk, Ritchie must have known his army and his career were on the line. On June 18, 1942, Tobruk was isolated and tempting the Africa Corps. Tobruk not only held a massive store of supplies, but it also offered a port capable of receiving supplies, which would significantly shorten Rommel's overland supply lines if captured. Defending Tobruk were 33,000 men under the newly promoted Major General Klopper. Ritchie promised a counterattack that would spoil the Germans' assault on Tobruk, but it never materialized. Ritchie was too slow and always three steps behind Rommel, when the preparatory bombardment began on June 20th, Klopper ordered his men to begin destroying supplies to deny as much as possible to the Desert Fox. Within 48 hours, Tobruk had fallen. All of Libya had now been lost, and the Middle East theater was in dire straits once again. On June 25th, General Auchinleck met Ritchie in Cairo and sacked him. Auchinleck now commanded the 8th Army directly and was himself no match for the speed and tenacity of the Africa Corps. Next, Rommel struck at Mersa Mutra, with only 150 tanks and 2,500 infantry against 40,000 Commonwealth soldiers. Rommel was victorious. Next, Rommel pushed East El Alamein, where his Africa Corps met the 8th Army once again and entered into a weeks-long slog. 
Unlike Richie, Auchinleck was able to find a way to fight Rommel on something like even terms. Auchinleck applied pressure on Rommel's forces, and forced him to commit forces in places of his own choosing, rather than Rommel's. In essence, he had finally seized the initiative. By throwing everything he had into the maelstrom, Rommel was able to prevent a complete rout, but his troops were exhausted from the miles of campaigning. During the first battle of El Alamein, Rommel wrote, quote, The enemy is using his superiority, especially in the infantry, to destroy the Italian formations one by one, and the German forces are too weak to stand alone. It's enough to make one weep. End quote. He later wrote, It can't go on like this for long, otherwise the front will crack. Militarily, this is the most difficult period I have ever been through. At first, El Alamein, Auchinleck had halted the Africa Corps' string of victories from Megazi to Tobruk. Rommel was in little better shape than his battered army. He had thrown his whole being into the campaign, driving his mind and body to their physical and spiritual limits. Due to his exhaustion, he would suffer an infected liver, ulcers, and sores. The Allies would attempt to capitalize on this. Beset by defeat on all sides, Churchill needed a victory somewhere and pushed Auchinleck to turn to the offensive. On July 23rd, the 8th Army was on the attack, despite being battered and weary from the previous month's campaigning. Though it did not achieve a decisive victory, the battle did force Rommel to commit every single man he had and further weaken both his army and his spirit. Rommel wrote, quote, Although the British losses in this Alamein fighting had been higher than ours, yet the price to Auchinleck had not been excessive. For the one thing that mattered to him was halting our offensive. And that, unfortunately, he had done. After a brief four days fighting, Auchinleck had to call off the offensive. He was only chewing up men, supplies, and materiel for little gain. When he informed Churchill, it cost him his command. Auchinleck had in fact suggested stepping down, and Churchill accepted. The Prime Minister's Conservative Party had just lost a tough by-election, and his black dog was biting at his heels again. Auchinleck was not completely disgraced, however. Iraq and Persia were broken off from the Middle East theater and given to Auchinleck. In his place, General Harold Alexander would take over in Cairo, and the little-known General Bernard Law Montgomery would assume command of the 8th Army. Montgomery was, in a sense, Britain's MacArthur. A brash, overconfident, arrogant son of a bitch, but damn it if he didn't win battles. Unlike MacArthur, though, Montgomery wasn't quite so problematic and was probably actually worth the trouble. On what can only be assumed to have been a typically dreary November day in London, beset by cold and misty rain, Bernard Law Montgomery was born to the Reverend Henry Montgomery of the Church of England and his wife Maud on November 17, 1887. Though born in England, Young Bernard's first memories doubtless would have been in Tasmania, where his father had been, a, been appointed bishop when young Bernard was just two years old. He would live there for twelve years, the formative years of his childhood spent in the far southern Australian island. From a very young age, Monty was a willful and rambunctious child, inclined to mischief. He even said himself that he was a dreadful boy. For this, his mother had to serve as the disciplinarian. She seems to have run the household, doling out allowances not only to her children, but to her husband as well. His mother's treatment of his benign and gentle father especially seems to have instilled in him a dim view of both matrimony and religion. In 1901, Henry Montgomery became the secretary for the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel, so the family returned to England. Because he had been educated mostly by tutors in the remote Australian backwater that was Tasmania at the time, 
Young Monty had no experience of school life, so he was completely unprepared on his first day at St. Paul's School in London. He was teased and derided as a colonial. It would seem strange that a society that prided itself for its vast colonial empire would mock the very people who administered that empire. But anyway, before long, he got along nicely enough. He learned to play cricket and rugby, the decidedly English analogs for football and baseball in American high schools. I can't find any sources, but I imagine Monty played at number two, the hooker. He was only 5'8", full-grown, and 140 pounds. A little wiry guy like that, who was called the monkey, screams hooker to me. I mean, how could he not be? The school magazine wrote on him that, quote, he is vicious, of unflagging energy, and much feared by the neighboring animals, owing to its tendency to pull out the top of the head. This is, it calls tackling, and doing many other atrocities. So it is advisable that none hunt the monkey. By his final year at St. Paul's, Bernardo was the captain of both the rugby team and the cricket team, who's coming into his own, and his tenacity would be a hallmark of his career. After finishing school at the age of 19, though, he needed to decide what to do with his life. Not being particularly religious, he immediately discounted following in his father's footsteps. What did seem appealing to him, though, was a military life, so he entered the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. Monty took to martial life immediately, his toughness and predilection to general tomfoolery and hijinks probably helped him fit in with the other alpha males. He had the distinction of being promoted to Cadet Lance Corporal during his first year, a rare achievement. His ability to torment and terrorize his classmates probably played a big role in that promotion. What at the time was viewed as, the lads having a bit of fun, would today be criminal assault. But Monty managed to get himself in trouble even by those loose standards. After being promoted to Lance Corporal, he eventually rose up the ranks to become his company color sergeant, which definitely went to his head. He and his gang of rabble-rousers decided to torment one student by lighting his clothes on fire and burning him badly. Monty was stripped of his rank but not expelled, which seems kind of lenient, but okay. The punishment and shame apparently worked, though, because he spent the rest of his academic career dutifully studying and avoiding trouble. He graduated 30th in his class in 1908 and received his first assignment. 1st Battalion, Royal Warwickshire Regiment in India. Contrary to what you may assume about him at this point, though, Monty did not immediately take to the social life of British officers posted to India, who spent most of their time schmoozing, drinking, and gambling. Instead, he focused himself on reading military history, considering military theory. This made him very unpopular. His turn to thoughtfulness by no means extinguished his competitive spirit, though. When the battleship Nisenau came to port in Bombay in 1911, the garrison agreed to a friendly soccer match. Montgomery had what was probably the best squad on the subcontinent, but not wanting to embarrass the German crown prince who was aboard the battleship, the brigadier in command of the garrison told Monty to just field his B squad. Monty thoroughly ignored that directive. He fielded his A side, absolutely demolished the Germans 40 nil. Asked why he had ignored the brigadier, Monty responded, I was taking no chances with those bastards. This attitude of taking no chances would serve him well when he got his first taste of combat in August 1914. His unit of the 10th Brigade, 4th Division, advanced on a German-held hill at the Battle of Lacateau. He was one of the few men, and even fewer officers, who managed to survive the assault. Small unit tactics consisted of little more than advance and retreat in August 1914, and the British were annihilated. In October, he was again in the Maelstrom at the Battle of Ypres. Here, he captured and drove the Germans out of a village. When he halted his men to consolidate, an enemy sniper began harassing their position. 
Montgomery was struck in the back, the bullet passing through his right rib cage. He fell to the ground, shouting off his men who rushed to retrieve him. He told them to get behind cover and return fire. So he lay there in the pouring rain until night fell, and his men could repel the Bosch. When Monty awoke, he was back in England, newly promoted to captain, and a freshly awarded Distinguished Service Order pinned to his chest. He would not return to the front until 1916, but that left him plenty of time to continue proving himself. The next battle he directly took part in was the Battle of Arras, where he served on 33rd Division staff. He eventually achieved the rank of Lieutenant Colonel during the war, and served on 9 Corps staff. In 1919, with the war over, and the army shrinking back down to peacetime size, he reverted to the rank of Major. He did not lose his cutting mind or willingness to be a black sheep, though. He continued to study warfare and theory, as he had in India, and while attending the Staff College at Camberley, constantly battled his instructors over the supposed wisdom they were passing down. They still preached that massive artillery barrages must precede an infantry assault. Monty protested, maneuver and mobility were the keys to breaking the back of trench warfare. Having served in the trenches, he despised them, and having been forced to advance without a plan, he was constitutionally averse to sending men into battle without a clear understanding of their task and purpose. The seeds of his success in the desert command of tanks were already laid. He would again see action during the interwar period this time in counterinsurgency in Ireland. The 17th Infantry Brigade was stationed in County Cork, Ireland, where they attempted to suppress the Irish but failed. Though they were harsh, Montgomery himself admitted that they could have been even more ruthless, though even that he doubts would have truly won the war. Though I don't have much on it, I don't think Montgomery much enjoyed counterinsurgency work. He was a maneuverist, not a policeman. By the 1930s, Monty was out on the fringes of the Empire again, commanding a battalion in Egypt. Here, his reputation for taking a heightened interest in the lives of his junior officers began to manifest. Unlike most commanders, he did not recommend his subordinates to get married, but at the same time, he also criticized them for frequenting brothels and whoring. Now, most commanders would probably encourage their young officers to settle down with a nice girl to help prevent these sorts of distractions, but not Montgomery. He considered love interests of any kind to be a distraction to a professional soldier and officer. Surprisingly, Montgomery ignored his own advice and married a widow with two sons in 1927. She bore him his only child, David. Despite his queer interest in the sexual activities and personal lives of his men, they performed outstandingly in the field. He had long ago realized that precision on the parade field did not translate at all into performance on the battlefield, so he never harped on it. By 1937, he had his own independent command, promoted to Brigadier General. His turn towards all things military and away from non-martial life was merely notable until the death of his wife in 1937. Her death sent him into a deep depression and caused him to focus even more narrowly on military matters. He didn't really have any friends or personal interests. His entire being was now consumed with the study of the art of war and military science. In fact, he used his professional pursuits as a means of grief therapy. His military successes in the near future would probably help lift him from his malaise. In 1938, his brigade participated in an invasion exercise in Britain, and his formation performed admirably under his command. So admirably, that Montgomery was one of the two men selected to lead divisions in Palestine to suppress the growing internecine conflict between Jews and Arabs. The other man being one General Richard O'Connor, 
who you may remember from the very earliest episodes on the war in North Africa. He commanded the 8th Army when it was still the Western Desert Force. By now a Major General, Montgomery was in command of the 8th Infantry Division. He performed well enough in Palestine and returned to England to soon be promoted to Lieutenant General. His next combat command would not be against rebels and insurgents. He would be returning to his true calling, offensive maneuver war, where tenacity and audacity are highly valued traits. Unlike in counterinsurgency, he could really shine, especially in the high-tempo operating environment of armored combat. The stage was set for Montgomery to enter into the hall of iconic characters of the Second World War. The world already had MacArthur with his famous corncob pipe, Rommel sporting goggles on his peaked cap, Churchill in his distinctive cigar and bowler, and now Montgomery entered the stage, rocking his iconic beret and mustache. <laughs> 